the volume. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Superchargers, headlights, and more with over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Boxing with Chris Mannix is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, there is a contest for every fan. FanDuel, more ways to win. This is Boxing with Chris Manning. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back to another episode of Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. Got a great show for you this week. A lot of news going on in boxing right now. You've got Jake Paul, a polarizing figure in boxing, picking up a win on Sunday. Josh Warrington back in the ring over the weekend. You've also got Terrence Crawford, Sean Porter. What's going on there? Dimitri Bivol, Zerto Ramirez. What's going on there? I get into all that and much more with Corey Erdman. Does a great job covering boxing for BoxingScene.com, among other outlets. A little bit later on, Hunter Warner. If you don't know the name Hunter Warner, he is a former AHL hockey player who has quit hockey and is picking up boxing. Hunter is a big six foot five heavyweight. He's got some family history with boxing, and he believes he can have success in the heavyweight division. I talked to Hunter about that decision who he's going to be working with, and how quickly he expects to be moved along in the boxing space. As always, best way to support this podcast, get over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to the show. All right. This is going to be an angry podcast. I'm going to get pissed off today. It just I just am. Corey Erdman's here. I'm not going to get pissed off at Corey. I like Corey. He is here. BoxingScene.com. It's a great job broadcasting uh, a lot of different places as well. I'm a little fired up today, Corey. There's, there's some stuff I want to get into, but I'm I'm trying to breathe through it a little bit so I don't wind up yelling into the podcast mic. Yeah, I, I've noticed that. I'll, I'll like, I'm in a pretty good mood, so I'll try and balance it out, but maybe you'll drag me down with you. Well, I'm not trying to drag people down. I, I'm mostly pissed off. We'll start here. I am annoyed at the anti-Jake Paul rhetoric. I don't think that Jake Paul is the future of boxing. I don't think Jake Paul 
is a very good boxer. I think he is average at best. Um, but what drives me crazy in the aftermath of Jake Paul's win over Tyron Woodley was scrolling through Twitter and seeing all these boxers either demean the quality of the contest or bemoan that so many eyeballs were on Jake Paul. To all those boxers, shut up. Go away. Jake Paul has turned his following into a a marketing machine for his boxing matches. In his fourth professional fight, he drew, what was it, 16,000, 17,000 in Cleveland. Full house at Quicken Loans Arena uh, last Sunday. And he fought a guy in Tyron Woodley who, for the record, and I said this to Sergio Mora this week, is a lot better than what most fighters are fighting in their fourth professional fight. Like, Sergio fought a guy that was 3-6-1 in his first professional fight. You're not going to tell me. I think his name was Sean Dooley. It was his name. You're not going to tell me that the 3-6-1 guy is worse than Tyron Woodley. But but more to the point, Corey. This is my, where my aggravation comes in. Like, boxers can have what Jake Paul has. You can have sold-out arenas. You can have a big following. You can have buzz around your fights. You know how that happens? You actually have to fucking fight somebody. You have to get into the ring and fight somebody. Instead, we get mismatch after mismatch. And when we do get a reasonable fight, we're all charging like 80 bucks for it. And even then, they might not be reasonable fights. So this is where I'm starting. This is the, the point of aggravation I'm starting from, Corey. The, you know, we'll talk about Jake Paul and what's next for him and all that stuff. But to all the boxers out there who are criticizing him, you created him. Like, Jake Paul was born of the stupidity of boxing. He was born out of boxing not giving fans the fights that they want. There's a reason, Corey, that you don't see influencers go into the octagon and try to lure retired boxers into the octagon. Why would they do that? UFC, MMA in general, gives fans quality fights. There's not as much room there for influencers to penetrate that market. There is a Fenway Park-wide berth of room for, fa- for, for influencers to penetrate boxing, and they have, and it's boxing's fault. Yeah, I, well, and, and I would say, and I, I've maintained this from the very beginning, that I don't think there's any reason for anyone to be mad at Jake Paul because I've always said, like, let the rising tide rise all, raise all the ships, right? And, and let's, let's put that in, into perspective here. I saw a stat, someone posted it on Twitter, that during that event, 50,000 people went to Google and searched for Montana Love. Do you think that 50,000 people in the history of his career searched for Montana Love prior to this? Put it this way. Put it this way, Love. I agree. Put it this way. Like, I cover boxing regularly. And I I had, you know, Brian Kenny and I did this uh, a couple of weeks ago where I didn't know one of the fighters that he brought up. Uh, I forgot his name already. Um, But... I didn't really know who Montana Love was coming into this either. Like, I was, like, the name kind of struck me as someone I've seen across the wire, but I hadn't seen him fight. I knew nothing about him, and now I know exactly who he is and exactly what he's capable of. Yeah, exactly. So that happened with Montana Love. And then people, many people have made the point that the fighters on the undercard are making good money when Jake Paul is fighting. Um, and also, Jake Paul is not doing anything different than we see. And I've made this point many times 
This is not anything different than you see on boxing cards everywhere where someone who has the, the ability to sell tickets gets opportunities because of that. Now, this happens to be someone who can sell a lot of tickets, 17,000 of them, in this case, by the way, which I found impressive, with no musical performance. This was just off the back of Jake Paul fighting. And when you can sell that many tickets, yeah, you're going to make a lot more money and we're probably going to put you in the, in the main event. We often see this, you know, Chris, like you've called some Broadway boxing cards before. Uh, I still do as well. And oftentimes you'll see kind of the local ticket seller go on as the main event, not on the broadcast, but kind of the, the local main event for the people who bought tickets because that's who they came to see. And then the other stuff, the better boxing is on the card as well. And it was that ticket seller that created opportunities for the rest of the boxers. Like, I just don't, I think it's a waste of energy for other fighters to be angry at Jake Paul for, uh, you know, something that he's doing where, and, and I'm not saying that Jake Paul's the savior of boxing, but for the people who have fought on his undercard, they have benefited either from, uh, either monetarily or through exposure or both. Often, very often both. I mean, Amanda Serrano, who headlined as the co-main event of this fight, she made, I was told, 190000 close to $200,000. She ain't making that anywhere else. No. And that's no. because of Jake Paul. Uh, Baranchik, I'm sure, got paid significantly. Um, Montana Love, I'm sure, got paid decently. So, like, everyone wins in, in a situation like this. And look, I, I, I kind of, like, I, again, I had this argument with Sergio this week. Like, I learned something about Jake Paul. Like, that was a learning experience for Jake Paul, the boxer. Up until that point, he had never gone past two rounds in a fight. He had to go eight rounds in this fight. Another thing, by the way, how many guys in their fourth professional fight are going eight rounds? Like, zero. Like, this doesn't, unless you're Vasily Lomachenko, you're not going that deep into fights early in your career, especially when you have no amateur background like Jake Paul. Um, but I, I learned that he can take a punch and recover, which he did in that fourth round. I learned that, yeah, he, he, he learned, more importantly, that you got to be in better shape to go eight rounds. But even when he was under pressure, he did enough to win the fight uh, by decision. So, like, I thought he got better as a boxer as a result of the Tyron Woodley fight. Yeah, I, I think that until now, if you had questions about, like, how seriously did he take this, you could have maybe had some question marks because of how easy his previous fights were. You could have said, oh, you know, if he trained a little bit, he still could have knocked these guys out. Now, I think this fight kind of dispelled that myth because to go eight rounds against someone who knew how to fight in Tyrone Woodley, he's not a great boxer, but he's an accomplished fighter and knew what he was doing in there and was able to apply pressure or at least move forward for eight rounds. Jake Paul is taking this seriously. And I, I mean this as a compliment. This is not demeaning. If, if I didn't know who Jake Paul was, if Jake Paul weren't famous, if he didn't have tens of millions of Instagram followers and I just saw him on an undercard somewhere or on a club show somewhere, Jake Paul would not look out of place. And that's a real compliment because this is someone that did not have an amateur background. He never boxed before. Effectively, he's been training for three years and he's got himself to a very respectable level. Now, because he's rich and, and famous and has nothing else to do with his time, he's able to have two former world title challengers basically live with him and he can train full time. And he has those advantages that other guys that are four and oh probably don't because they have to work a day job. So he's had, he's had advantages, but I still think that getting to this point and where he's at right now, to me, is very impressive. To be a passable, like, club-level undercard fighter at this point, three years into your career, is an accomplishment.
I'll tell you something. I, I know BJ Flores is co-trainer. Uh, he's having just as good a time as Jake Paul. Right. right. <laughs> like this. There's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. And, and look, I actually think that it being so close and, so, and a tough fight for Jake it creates even more opportunities for him now. Like he says, he's going to take some time off, but you know, all boxers say that in the aftermath of uh, a tough fight, uh, I, he'll be back probably before the end of the year. And when he does, there's a Tommy Fury fight. And by the way, speaking of boxers versus uh, non-boxers, like Tommy Fury theoretically is the the real quote boxer of the two. I would certainly argue Jake looked better than Tommy Fury did on Sunday. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, you know, Tommy didn't look great. And and I think that this will be one of the challenges moving forward for Jake Paul is that you can't just put, even though he's now, you know, kind of been baptized as a real boxer, he's gone eight rounds. Now, now we're taking it seriously, but he's still Jake Paul. So he has to fight people who are famous and there's going to come a time and probably pretty soon Correct. where he's way too good to be fighting O and O MMA fighters. And he has to face someone like a Tommy Fury or a really faded kind of ex champion that he can contend with. So the challenge with matching and moving Jake Paul moving forward is that you can't move him like a normal boxer, even though he is kind of training like one, you need people with name value each and every time. And at a certain point, it's going to get a little bit dangerous. Like, and maybe Tommy Fury is that fight. Maybe it isn't, but that time is going to come pretty soon. And that's why maybe the rematch with Woodley next, since there's like some kind of controversy amongst people who don't watch boxing that often about who won that fight and whether he was hurt or not. Uh, that might be the best move for him next to give him a little bit more time to develop before he has to take a real risk. Yeah, uh, I'm okay with not seeing Tyron Woodley again. I mean, it was it was a more fun fight. And by the way, it was a I've seen worse fights oh, yeah. on television. Like I've seen significantly uh, every week. Showtime had a Guillermo Rigondeau. Like yeah, yeah, Guillermo right. Rigondeau headlined a championship show <laughs> and threw fewer punches than Jake Paul did. So like at some point we have to take everything into context. As far as Tommy Fury, like being a challenge, maybe he is. I mean, he's got the bloodline and certainly he's got a little bit more experience as a boxer, but I'd point out that uh, Tommy Fury, his last one, two, three, four, five, six opponents have a combined four wins on their resume. Uh, four of the six had zero wins. One was two and 26. So it's not like he's facing world beaters as he's coming up the ranks himself. I'd be fine with, Jake Paul, Tommy Fury over in the UK. And you're right. Like, there, there is a, a, a small well, so to speak, of potential opponents out there. And there is, as Dana White has said, a short shelf life for Jake Paul. But that shelf life still has got a couple of years, I think, left in it. Like, he can still do this for a couple of years. Maybe he beats Tommy Fury. Maybe he can lure Conor McGregor into there. Maybe there's something else out there. I mean, these MMA guys, if they sniff a payday... As we've seen countless times before, they will get in the ring and box with Jake Paul. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of money on that shelf that we're talking about too. For you know, if it if, even if his career lot lasts ten fights, that's a lot of money in Jake Paul's pocket and a lot of money in other fighters' pockets, like we're talking about. But again, going back to what I was talking about, remember that Jake Paul is basically doing this full time. You know, he has a lot of resources and time at his disposal. And we've seen guys with no boxing experience, you know, before we came on the air, we were talking about Seth Mitchell. Seth Mitchell didn't have any boxing experience before. He was an athlete. He was a high level athlete. Jake Paul didn't play at Michigan state, but Jake Paul was a, you know, a, a good high school athlete clearly has some athletic capability and he's got nothing but time to learn how to be a boxer. So maybe, maybe he does develop into something 
you know, even better in more that we have to take a little bit more seriously on the world level. He has the resources to make that kind of thing happen if he can keep winning. Yeah, no question about that. We will see Jake Paul back in the ring, regardless of his retirement tweet. Although I yeah. thought my friend. Uh, I think he recanted that, right? Yeah. Nah, did he recant that? I think uh, so. I thought yeah. my, He's back. I thought my I thought my friend Kevin Clark over at the ringer had the best subtweet where he said, ah, Jake Paul retired. He's officially a boxer now because he retired early as so many boxers in the past have done. Let's talk for a second, Corey, about the undercard where some of the more, uh, let's say legitimate, but legitimate boxing matches happened. Uh, Amanda Serrano defended her 126 pound titles, uh, outpointing, uh, Yamilith Mercado, Mercado, sorry. Um, afterwards the talk turned to what's next for Amanda Serrano. She seems hell bent on becoming undisputed at 126. A Katie Taylor fight, is out there at some point. It was talked about and came pretty close to being made last summer in Eddie Hearn's garden as part of fight camp. They ultimately couldn't agree on the money. Uh, I understand a desire to be the undisputed at anything. I, I get that. But there's no real money in Amanda Serrano versus like Erica Cruz, yeah. who's got one piece of the title. There's serious money in a fight against Katie Taylor. So I, I don't know about you, but I'd like to see Amanda Serrano kind of come off this and, you know, you, you can do that. If, if you fight Katie Taylor and lose, you can always go back to 126 and defend your titles there. She's shown a very, uh, she's got a gift of going up and down in weight. Yeah. Some serious ups and downs. <laughs> Unlike and anyone so, else I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> 140 to 115 at one point, which was yeah. wild. Um, I'd like to see her kind of laser in on that because to me, Serrano Taylor is the biggest fight in women's boxing. And I'm not really sure there's one that's all that close. I mean, Clarissa Shields, Savannah Marshall, that's got some history because of the amateurs. Uh, you certainly have Jessica McCaskill out there uh, as undisputed at 147. But to me, this is the biggest fight in women's boxing. They should be running towards this fight. Yeah, I, I think that in terms of like how much money this makes, I think this is the, the biggest fight in women's boxing. I think to your point that Clarissa and, and Savannah Marshall um, are in that discussion as well. But Katie... I think has just been given the opportunity to be a marquee star in a way that Clarissa really hasn't. And Katie just has that cachet in the UK to make this a monstrous fight. This is potentially a seven figure fight. And so I think that, and I don't know what the issue is here. I don't know if there's some hesitance on Serrano's camp's part about whether that deal can be made or not, but I agree that should be her focus right now. And I talked to, to Katie yesterday and she said, yeah, I, I'm ready anytime. You know, we, I'm, I'm, the ball is in their court. We're ready to do this. And, but I, then I also saw Eddie Hearn say, no, we're looking at that for 2022. So well, look, Corey, you know. I, I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool at 2022 because there's a date for that, right? Sure. It's St. Patrick's day weekend in New York. Like that yeah. is an ideal date that those two um, could headline either the small room or the, maybe even the big room if you get the right undercard on it, you could do a big event at Madison Square Garden on St. Patrick's Day in 2022. The key is the buildup for it to me. Like, if Amanda Serrano wants to try to unify another piece of the title, she should do it in December on a card that's headlined by Katie Taylor. Like, right. they yeah. should be on yeah. the same card in December. And then with if both win, they Serrano moves up and they fight in, uh, in March of 2022. Because if, if it's after that, you start getting into this dangerous place where you're over-marinating and something yeah. could happen where one of them loses or there's an injury. You, you've got to 
strike while the iron is hot. And to me, it's St. Patrick's Day 2022. Yeah, and and I, I think that's a really good point. I don't think this has to be an either-or scenario. I think if you're Serrano, you can unify. You, you can fight Erica Hernandez, pick up the last title, unify that division, hopefully on a card with Katie Taylor. And then we really have momentum building towards March of 2022. So I don't think this had – there's enough time there where you can do both of those things. And, and if she does unify another division, I mean, it's just – she's – arguably in terms of professional accomplishments she has an argument as one of the most maybe the most decorated women's fighter of all time we look at the the breadth of and the um you know how many weight classes she's been able to do this and she has that argument and this just builds upon that this doesn't have to be an either or scenario you you can do both and it only helps your case to make that katie taylor fight and hopefully makes you both more money yeah uh, you know i hope that money doesn't become an obstacle here from the Serrano side. I don't think it's ever been an obstacle for Katie Taylor. Maybe that's because Taylor is correctly considered the A side uh, in that fight. But back in 2020, when there were negotiations going on, there was a person play for, I believe in excess of $200,000 and Serrano and her team turned it down. And look, there were some issues. They didn't want to necessarily fight in Eddie Hearn's backyard. I get that. I mean, to a degree, but I I think you got to, you want to make a lot of money, but you got to understand who the money maker is here. Who is the the cash cow? That's Katie Taylor. Like if if it's St. Patrick's Day weekend in New York, that's going to be like ninety percent Irish pro Katie Taylor. There'll be some you know Serrano fans. The Puerto Rican community in in New York is very strong, as we've seen many times in the past. But that's going to be Katie Taylor is going to be selling the tickets. Katie Taylor is going to be driving the ratings. Katie Taylor is going to be doing. She is the, the, the engine behind that fight. I, I just hope that, you know, greed doesn't get involved in something like that. Because I don't know, I don't know, I, I mean, I say this respectfully, but where is the money for Amanda Serrano elsewhere? Like, is well, it, like, I mean, you go back on NBC Sports Network and, you know, make like 30, 40 grand or something like that. I mean, I guess you could do that, but is it really worth going through like an eight-week training camp for that end result? But, I mean, to this point, though, her price, to, to quote Fat Joe, yesterday's price is not today's price. Correct. And after... After she fought for closing in on 200000 on Showtime just a week ago, now that price has gone up. So if the sticking point is, no, we won't fight for two hundred k or less, well, now she's established herself as someone that can command that kind of money. So I think that, you know, I'm optimistic that this can happen and that perhaps we have cleared that hurdle and that whoever's putting the money up is now in agreement that, yeah, she deserves a little bit more money. And yes, this is the fight that needs to be made. Hey, she's not, though, I don't think that Team Serrano is in a great bargaining position, though, because, you know, Katie Taylor can turn around and fight a rematch with Jessica McCaskill. She can fight really anyone and be a pretty big draw yeah. and do and and earn, you know, significant money. This fight would probably be the most money Katie Taylor would make as well. Maybe it gets her into seven figures for uh, for this fight. But, uh, you know, she can turn around and go elsewhere. I'm, not, I'm just not sure where Serrano goes if it's not – Takeda Taylor, you know, whether it's Lou DiBella, Eddie Hearn, Team Serrano, Team Taylor, they've all got to get together after this Taylor fight uh, this weekend and figure out how to make this work, how to build this properly, get them both on the same card in December and uh, and move forward. I think that Katie wants it, though. And I think that there will she be. Does. Yeah, you know, she but she wants, I think that she will apply some degree of pressure when it comes to the negotiations, too. She's 35. She's run out of options, really, at 135. She's just, you know, picking off her mandatories really at this point and at 35 I think she wants those you know uh, this is kind of a, a house that Katie Taylor has built when she started boxing 
there was no women weren't allowed to box in Ireland when she started boxing, right? Like Katie Taylor enters women's boxing along with Clarissa Shields and she creates a market where women can headline on television and, and on premium cable cards. And this is the kind of generational fight that I think is kind of the, the apex is the conclusion that she's looking for. And the, the hourglass is kind of running out. She came close to losing against uh, Delphine Persone. I think she knows that this fight has to happen soon, especially if she wants the best chance to win it. Oh, she can be beaten. There's no doubt about that. She's great, and she'll be the favorite against anybody she faces, including Amanda Serrano, but she can be beaten. So I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, we should mention the craziness of the aftermath of Amanda Serrano's fight against Mercado, where her trainer, Jordan Maldonado, went nuts and yelled at uh, Mercado, basically saying, we expected a Mexican warrior we didn't get it. Uh, Mercado's team has filed paperwork with the Ohio Commission asking them to investigate this, claiming that uh, Maldonado also chased Mercado to the ambulance afterwards and was saying some similar things. I had heard that as well from people that were in uh, Cleveland uh, for that fight. Uh, Jordan is a very active guy. Let's just call him that. Like, the, you know, and this is not a, a new thing for him being active like that. I mean, I my first experience with Amanda Serrano as a reporter and a broadcaster was when Katie beat Cindy Serrano in Boston back in 2018. And afterwards, Jordan was in the ring. He was yelling like you fought the wrong Serrano. Cindy's his wife. <laughs> he's, right, right. he's yelling yeah. some, some, some crazy things. And there was the incident in Puerto Rico when he was booted from ringside on the NBC sports network show. When, when Taylor, fought, when uh, Serrano fought on that one. So this is not new stuff. What, what I would say about this is like, it just, it's a distraction, and it's an unnecessary one, at the very least. It's, you know, I mean, the focus should be on Amanda Serrano defending her titles. It should be on Amanda Serrano being a top three pound-for-pound women's fighter. Instead, we're discussing this as part of the story, which isn't really necessary. I mean, I thought, I, I don't know about you, Corey, I thought Mercado did acquit herself pretty well in that fight. She wasn't as talented as Serrano, but she didn't quit. She had multiple opportunities, I thought, to wave off the fight, including between the ninth and 10th round when she had that nasty mouse or cut underneath her eye. She could have said, I'm done, but she went out there and gave it her all for the last two minutes. So she just wasn't as talented as, as Amanda Serrano. So yeah. I, don't, I don't agree with any of that stuff and, at all. And, and very few people are, right? I mean, and, and the allegations here against Mal Malvinado were extremely troubling. You know, yelling at someone while they're on the stretcher or coming to center ring mid-fight and, and using misogynist language, like... If these allegations are true, that's not acceptable. And and the other thing is like clearly Maldonado is a good trainer. I mean, he's he's put together two sisters who are world champions, has helped foster one of the very best women's fighters in the world. And when these things happen and you start getting reports to the commission and you jeopardize your availability to your fighter, you start jeopardizing these future fights, you start jeopardizing, you know, her ability to compete at an optimum level in those fights. You know, I, I think Jordan, like if, if these allegations are true again, you know, I think there's just at minimum has to be a, a public apology. Um, and, you I know, wouldn't he, he, I wouldn't count, I wouldn't count on, that. on it either, but, you know, he's, he's got to cool it. I would say, like, save it for the pre-fight. Like, it's great pre-fight. Like, yeah. I think Jordan, Jordan could be such a huge asset to a promotion pre-fight, you know, with Katie Taylor. Like, he just, you know yapping at Taylor's side. Meanwhile, Ross, Katie's trails, but yapping back at trainer, but yapping back at him. But when it's over, like how many times afterwards, Corey, have we seen when it's over guys shake hands? Like, listen, it's, it's all part of the, promotion. it's, all, it's business. all business. Yeah, exactly. But like, yeah, he did. He went after, he started yelling at some, there was a fight. It was a, 
I think it was January of 2020, one of the last big events we had before the pandemic. And Amanda got some kind of, yeah, it was basically a throw her a bone kind of fight. Like they just like gave her an easy fight on the, I think it was Jojo Diaz, that undercard in Miami. And she fought some no hoper. And afterwards, Jordan's doing the same thing. He's yelling at the opposing side. I'm like, I mean, come on. Like, I mean, okay, if you beat Katie Taylor and do that, or if you knock her out, by all means, I think you kind of, I think <laughs> yeah. it's still wrong, but you kind of earn the right to, to, to yap if you knock out the pound for pound number, number one. But yeah, uh, when you, you got to understand level of opponent. Like, Mercado was like, you know, I don't know if she was a late replacement, but they couldn't get any of the other champions in the ring. So she just accepted the thing, took the check, and we'll go back to the lower weight class, which still has a title. Uh, yeah. that, that whole situation was. Yeah. Th- this isn't pro wrestling. You have to know like when the fight is over, you, you could stop being a heel, you know, yeah. <laughs> that is, it's, it's over it's, now. It's just done. Everybody yeah. can just move on. <laughs> All right. On Saturday, Josh Warrington is in what I think is the biggest fight of his professional career. Back in February, Warrington was officially knocked out by Mauricio Lara, a up until that point, completely unheralded, uh, 126 pound contender. Um, I say knocked out Corey, but battered, beaten, senseless. That was one of the worst beatings I've seen recently. It was it was a, it was a pretty good beating that that Josh Warrington took in that fight. He's back now and he's going straight into a rematch against Mauricio Lara. That's a fight. That's going to be in really in Warrington's backyard of Leeds, a place he's fought many times before, been successful. That fight's on Saturday on DAZN. Let's start here. What do you make of Warrington after taking that beating uh, going straight into the rematch? Well, I think like divorced from any context, when you look at this fight, it's exactly the kind of fight you don't want to take in boxing, which is high risk and low reward. The problem is... The story coming into that first fight between Warrington and Lara was, hey, we've got this guy, you know, we're going to keep Josh Warrington busy. Uh, And even the commentators were saying, hey, he doesn't have the same pedigree as Warrington, but he's staying busy. There's no fans here. Um, He dropped his title. Like, remember, he dropped his title before the fight. So when the story coming into the first fight is this guy doesn't belong in the ring with you, and then you take a savage beating, there's no way to turn around and say, all right, well, I'm going to fight someone else in the interim, I'm going to go right into a title fight against Galahad or, or Lee Wood or whoever it may be. This is a right that you, so this is a wrong that you have to correct at this point. And, and it's because of, you know, maybe a, a serious underestimation of Lara. And that's another factor here too, is that the reality of that fight probably wasn't that Warrington is entirely shot and got beat with someone who had no business being in the ring with him sometimes the scouting report is wrong. And I think this was also the case here too, where Lara was a whole lot better than anyone realized, even the promoters and matchmakers. But the public still thinks like, hey, why'd you lose to this guy? So I think you do have to come back and you do have to beat him if you want to have a sellable fight next time for a world title or for another big money encounter. Well, Warrington sees redemption uh, for him in this fight. Here's what he had to say this week about... uh, how he sees this fight with Lara potentially shaping up. There's no personal animosity between me and Mauricio. It's just business. I feel like when AJ got his redemption against Andrew Ruiz, it was done, forgot about, and that's going to be the same on Saturday night. Mauricio has come over with a bit of an entourage. He looks smart today at the haircut, but once he's been done, it'll be massive. It'll give me a massive lesson 
in my career, but that will be it. We move on. So Warrington believes there's a potential for Joshua Ruiz here where Joshua back in 2019 was knocked out, beaten up, stopped by Andy Ruiz, came back six months later and won by decision. Do you see parallels to something like this? Kind of, yeah. And and like in in his mind, you know, he has a lot of reasons that he's kind of put out there. One was that one of his good friends got knocked out like right before he went out to the ring. So he maybe wasn't emotionally all there. He's fighting in a a venue that sounded like a library. And so he feels like with with a raucous crowd and with the, the ability to go back and study that tape, that maybe he won't make those same mistakes. And, and Warrington went right at Lara throughout that entire fight. Even when he got hurt, he went right at him. And Warrington yeah, that's is a, that's not... a tactical mistake. That's right, a tactical and, mistake. and especially for a guy like Warrington that is not a concussive uh, boxer. So maybe game plan-wise, there's another parallel. Maybe he comes into this fight and is able to outbox Lara, and then we can kind of move on, or he can move on from this fight. So I, I do see some parallels, if only in Warrington's mind why he believes that he needs to do this and why he's able to rectify this loss. Yeah, I, I can only imagine, like, what Warrington thought of Lara coming into this fight, or to the first fight, because Lara, like, I, I don't know if there was any tape on him going into that. I mean, the right, guy spent yeah. his entire career, almost his entire career, fighting in Mexico. He fought once, I'm looking at now, at a Holiday Inn in Mexico. Like, so it's not <laughs> like he was fighting, you know, in marquee events. And maybe this didn't take him seriously. There's also the possibility, though, and I'm reminded of that old... Uh, line from Apollo Creed's trainer. It's like, this guy's just all wrong for us, baby. Like, he's all wrong for us. And maybe Lar is that. Like, it's, I, I tend to agree with what you said there about tactics. Like, don't go in there and try to slug it out with this guy to prove a point. Like, if you want to take a, a page out of AJ's book, he didn't. He went right. out there and just moved around Andy Ruiz and picked up his, uh, his, got his titles back that way and moved his career forward. And no one faulted him for it. No, no one faulted no, no, him for no. it. Except yeah. Ruiz, who was yelling for a third fight. But that, that's neither <laughs> right, right. there. No, but I think Warrington has the certainly has the ability to outbox Lara. But if he goes out there and tries to prove a point and like show he's a man's man, like yeah, this might be one of those fights where he doesn't recover from it. Like you know, I don't want to say his career could be over after this fight, but maybe it could. <laughs> like you know, at this you know, if you have another uh, knockout loss to a guy like this and you're 30 years old, I mean, who knows? Well, and then, like, if that happens, let's say he loses again, how do you then rehabilitate him in the eyes of the public? Like, what does that mean? You know, two more kind of rust-shaking, stay-busy fights, and then a rematch with Kid Galahad or, or a fight with Lee Wood? Like, I think the the intrigue of this fight, too, is that if he can beat Lara in the rematch, the rewards are right there in easily makeable fights, like, within his own promotional body. So there is a lot on the line in, in an immediate fashion for Warrington to, to get this win back. Yeah, and speaking of not letting fights marinate too long, Warrington, Zukan, we'll never see that fight. That's another example of one <laughs> yeah. that should have been made when you could have made it, and now it's uh, worthless, at least until both those guys rehabilitate uh, their careers. All right, I want to ask you about the changes that we've seen within the WBA. Uh, My feelings on the WBA are well known to this point. On the DAZN broadcast a couple of weeks ago, I said this. The WBA belt is on the line in this fight. It's one of 43 belts the WBA has handed out across its 17 weight classes. You know, the relationship between sanctioning bodies and fighters, it should be symbiotic. The WBA's relationship with boxing is parasitic. They are fee-gobbling bloodsuckers 
who have done nothing but damage this sport. And until they clean it up, boxing would be a lot better if all the fighters with WBA belts, including the winner of this one, throws those belts in the trash. So, Corey, in the aftermath of the debacle between uh, Maestri and Fox, which was a few weeks ago now, uh, you've seen the WBA start to do some things that are positive. They are or have eliminated interim champions, which they should do. Uh, They are now pushing for, you know, consolidation, so to speak, between title holders by ordering uh, regular champions against super champions, things like that. They forced Javante Davis to choose between his titles at 130 and 135. So we're seeing some, some, some positivity out of the WBA. Are you buying, though, the WBA as a changed uh, sanctioning body? Well, I, I, I want to say this. The WBA is not your friend. All right, they, they're doing a really good job right now of kind of laundering their image in the aftermath of everything that happened by calling up reporters and saying, oh, hey, there's going to be a purse bid for this fight. And, and of course, if you're a reporter, you have to take that news. You take the call from Gilberto and you report it and people get excited. They're like, hey, Gervonta Davis is going to fight Rolly Romero. And there's, there's a string of kind of positive stories or at least not negative stories now out there about the WBA. But what in reality have they really changed other than of course eliminating some of those titles which of course is good it simplifies things those titles probably shouldn't have existed but i mean there were those fighters paid sanctioning fees for those titles they're not giving that money back to those fighters they're just saying you're not interim champion anymore now pay us so that we can sanction another fight for you and really what they're responding to was the letter from the Association of, of Boxing Commissions, where they were saying, you have too many titles, this is confusing, how is this happening? The deeper problems are not really things that they've either responded to outside of you know banning Gloria Rizzo, which obviously they should do, but the other things they just haven't really responded to at all, which is a lot of improper relationships. There is, I think, the, um, there's the perception of a lack of impartiality within the WBA, there was that video that was that was on Maestre's Instagram of Mendoza in the hotel room with uh, Jorge Linares the day of Devin Haney's fight, FaceTiming with Gabriel Maestre. That's like that appearance of a, a total lack of impartiality. They haven't responded to any of that. Like, can you imagine if uh, the night of the Super Bowl, Roger Goodell was hanging out with Tom Brady laying in his bed? That's absurd, right? The, the, the optics of this are horrible and they've responded to none of them. They've basically done the bare minimum and say, oh, we heard you, you just want fewer titles. Well, that's one of those things. But the WBA since 1982, it was basically baptized in controversy and it continues to, and they've basically responded to none of it. So no, I, I don't trust that the WBA as an organization is somehow you know, better. They just have fewer titles to fuck around with. Yeah, I need to see how they operate when the spotlight is off them. I mean, what's happened over the last few weeks uh, has caught the attention of mainstream media and and put them on websites they ordinarily would not find their way on, yes. onto television shows they ordinarily would not find themselves on, and has exposed them as this corrupt entity that people deep in boxing know that they are at some point and maybe we're already there people are going to move on and start talking and thinking about other things it's at that point 
that I will look to the WBA and see if they have made real progress. I think what they've done to this point is absolutely a positive. And I think by ordering sure. fights, you're not going to have every fighter take the fights that are ordered, but maybe you get one or two. They tend to be pretty good fights or at least meaningful fights. That's why sanctioning bodies, as I pointed out, they have the ability to have this symbiotic relationship with boxing. They can benefit from high sanctioning fees and boxing can benefit by fighters being ordered to negotiate for the right to have that title. But I'm with you. You've They've got a lot of work to do. And most of that work has to be done without the scrutiny that they're under right now. And I'm skeptical that we will see that. I think, and we've seen it in the past, remember Gilberto, he's promised this stuff before. Now he hasn't eliminated as many titles as he has before, but he's promised to clean up the WBA's act in the past, hasn't done it. We'll see if what's happened over the last month has will have a lasting impact. Yeah, and, and even some of the efforts that they've done to to try to clean things up, like apparently they brought in Gary Shaw as kind of like an like a welcome back, guy, Gary Shaw. You know, hey, Gary, yeah. I haven't seen so you. Now Gary's overseeing all this, right? But for me, I think there's even a question to be answered there. Now, to, to full transparency, I don't know what happened with this in court. But in 2014, there was a lawsuit from a former IBF ratings chairman um, filed against the IBF. And in it, it was alleged that Gary Shaw was paying for rankings. So that may be a question they might want to answer as well. That Hey, even the person you've hired to clean things up has been a part of this mess. You know, this is this is like, you know, and boxing loves to do this. Like, hey, we're going to get Victor Conti to clean up PEDs in, in boxing. Like, we go to the people who made issues to solve the issues. And that's just, that's classic boxing. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, as far as like paying for ratings go, like, you know, the, the, the I, image of it is like, here's a, an envelope full of money, you know, rank my guy number two or number three. But it feels like promoters have been paying for ratings one way or the other for decades. In some fashion, yes. In yes, some yeah. fashion. They yeah. have been maybe not so much with money in, a, in under a mattress, but uh, in some way, shape, or form, there's been influence uh, in that way. You mentioned Victor Conti. It's a good transition here to uh, PEDs in boxing. Oscar Valdez, the 130-pound champion for the WBC, uh, he has been found to have a banned substance in his system uh, I'm blanking. What was the name? What was the substance? It's, I had it's, it's fentram- fentramine, which is fentramine, kind of a high-powered is... weight loss drug. Yeah. Right, right. It's a high-powered central nervous si- yeah. stimulant, a high-powered weight loss drug. Uh, Valdez's argument is that he was taking it, or he got it from an herbal tea, which I don't think is actually a thing. Um, he got it from something, and it was out of cycle, and it's allowed out of cycle by WADA. And, you know, there's only a trace amount in his system, which should vindicate him in some way shape or form it is now in front of uh the commission in arizona to deal with right now what do you make of the the valdez positive test and what should be the outcome to all this because valdez was scheduled to fight later in the year yeah so i'm kind of of two minds of this so as you describe basically what happened is is valdez his lawyer, Pat English, which is who you should call if you get in trouble in boxing. You just yeah, want, everybody calls Pat you English, know? yes. Uh, one of the people who created the Muhammad Ali Act and and has dealt with situations like this before. And in reading his letter, um, he did two things. One, as you described, he established that his client is it took it out of competition. It was a mistake. It's a trace amount. It was, it was, it was a long time ago. 
Number two, if this were a different testing agency, this would have been allowed. And, and as Kevin Ioli pointed out, if he were a UFC fighter and he had taken this out of competition, he would still be fighting right now and under, again, different testing facilities, they would allow for that. But the other point he made was that VADA does not determine who gets to fight and who doesn't. They are an independent agency who, who basically, they send their findings to the local commission and to the sanctioning body, in this case, the WBC. And then they can then make the decision as to whether he can fight or not. We, we saw, you know, with Eric Morales, when he fought Danny Garcia, he was able to go in the ring anyway. Like, so, and, and that Which is- Which was one of the, one of the more yeah. reprehensible things at that time. Like Danny Garcia ultimately stopped him, but like there was, right. I remember being in the Barclays Center for that. Like nobody could ever really explain to me why Eric Morales <laughs> right. was actually fighting then. Yeah. But that is like, Pat makes a good point that like Vada does not actually determine who gets to fight or not. So yeah, like the local commission could say, we're going to allow this to happen. I think the problem is like, I think you reasonable people can discuss whether or not Vada should be in charge of these things or whether uh, other testing bodies and, and testing facilities are better. But in this case, I think the fact that you've signed up for Vada and under their rules, you have taken something that was improper, the optics for boxing to say, all right, well, we signed up for these things, but yeah, he tested positive, but we're going to go ahead and, and do it anyway, is just, it doesn't look good. Even if you think that Valdez didn't actually do anything wrong and he should be able to fight a month later, I, it just really sends a, a pretty bad message to the otherwise uninformed public about boxing stance on performance enhancing drugs. This to me is a big test of Mauricio Suleiman and the WBC, because here you have Valdez, a Mexican champion of a Mexican organization. The WBC, to their credit, were the first in line to create this clean boxing program. Yep. Um, they, they have been very good, or at least better than every other sanctioning body, on drug testing. This is a high-profile situation. If they kind of come up with a reason to let Valdez keep the title... And for that fight to move forward, I don't think they can really stop it, but they can they control the title. If they find can find wiggle room to let Valdez keep the title, to me, all their words are meaningless. I look, I I like Oscar Valdez. I don't think this should define him by any stretch. Like, and I firmly believe, as I believe with Canelo and with many others, sometimes shit happens. Sometimes there are reasonable, uh, non nefarious reasons for why things get into your system. Now. I'm going to need to know more about this herbal tea stuff because you mentioned Victor Conti, why we pivoted here. Like Conti's been on the record saying there's no way that's possible. And this guy knows a lot about banned sub. He actually said, like, I've given athletes right. this substance. Yeah, right, and right, it's not right. how it gets into your system. Right. So I, I, I will need, I'd need to hear a little bit more about that. But, you know, if he tests positive, these are the rules. You should be stripped of the title. The fight should be called off. There should be some sort of suspension. Maybe it's three months, six months, whatever you want to call it. And then... Put him back in line to get his title back again. This, this to me, will be a big test of, of the WBC. Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of how I feel about it. I don't think that this has to define Oscar Valdez, like especially if he did take it uh, out of competition, sure. uh, tea or not. And by the way, I, I've searched for this. I can't find any fentermine teas. I can find I fentermine. I could not either. I, I can either. find fentermine pills that have green tea extract in them, but I can't find any fentermine pills. If anyone out there can find them, they let me know. I'm yeah. looking for a hookup. But, hit, hit us, hit um, us both up. I, I, yeah, I, I, no, I, did, I did a Google search on that too as well. Like I couldn't find. <laughs> yeah. Like when he's, because that's in every story now. It's Pat English talking about herbal tea. And I'm like, all right, well, is, is that really a thing? Does 
anybody want to follow up on that and say, what, can you show me the herbal tea? Like, right, can right. we have, like, can you produce it? So, <laughs> but yeah, it would just, it, it, I don't know how you come back from this then as, uh, as the WBC, as, as you stated, if you just decide now nah, we're, we're okay with this, we're going to recant what we're saying. If, if we do have some tolerance, you know, I, I think you just kind of have to let this fight go and, and revisit it, you know, a couple months down the road. I love Debella out there now with like, let's after feuding with Oshaki Foster forever. Now it's like, he's just like, Oshaki needs to get that title shot. Bring him <laughs> on against Miguel Burchelt, who, by the way, why is Miguel Burchelt still ranked that highly? Do you, do you not drop further when you lose? Like, what is, I don't, I, uh, sanctioning bodies drive me crazy, obviously. All right, let me finish with a couple of uh, small things. The Crawford Porter purse bid, which was originally scheduled for Thursday, has been pushed back to September 14th. That is for Crawford's WBO uh, welterweight title. What that news tells me, Corey, is that Top Rank and PBC are afraid of Eddie Hearn and Ryan Kavanaugh. Like, I don't think they want to go into a purse bid and be bidding against each other, but also be bidding against Eddie Hearn's deep pockets and Ryan Kavanaugh's deep pockets. Eddie Hearn's already told me he intends to be part of the purse bid for Porter and Crawford. I would imagine if Triller wants to keep putting on big events, this would be something that they're interested in. That's how I interpreted this purse bid being delayed because I, mean, I had talked to some PBC people out at the Pacquiao fight. They were resigned to the fact this was coming, going to a purse bid. Like this, they were, they believed there was no wiggle room there. I, I feel like they got, a, both sides might've got a little spooked about who might win the purse bid and take both fighters from them away. Do you think, and I'm going to kind of volley this back, like, do you think that that top rank, like, how much do they care about whether someone scoops this up? Because they seem resigned to the fact that this is the last fight that they're going to have with Terrence Crawford. And one of the reasons for that is that obviously they have this lucrative TV deal that could basically finance every show that they have. They're not going to run shows that aren't on television. And so anything that might risk them losing money, it's just not worth it for them to do it. And they seemed oddly okay with, you know, Teofimo, uh, you know, uh, going over to, to Triller for one fight. Would they be the, uh, that upset with, with not paying Terrence Crawford in this last fight? I, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure what to make of it. Yeah, it's hard to say on that count. Um, perhaps there's some pressure from ESPN uh, about adding the fight, but it would have to be a right. co-pay-per-view most likely. Unless, well, of course, if it went to... If PBC won the purse bid, they would uh, get the fight on their own. They could do it on Fox pay-per-view uh, or Showtime pay-per-view for that matter. I don't know. There's, there's certainly uh, some questions there, but yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine, I, I don't know if, if they, I don't know if they love the optics of once again, losing a marquee fight that could have been on one of their platforms. That right. Would be bad, especially like that's a fight. Like I, I'm pretty sure Eddie Hearn, who has not released any kind of significant U.S. schedule up until this point, that would be one he would certainly want to add to DAZN's U.S. schedule, and one that you know it would cost a lot of money, but you know might be worth it for them in terms of adding subscribers and and maybe even getting in the Terrence Crawford business. Well, that I mean, that that was my thing. I think whoever wins this, you would think that they're viewing this as a stepping stone to having Terrence Crawford on their roster. And so they may be willing to drastically overpay for this, but you're right. I think for, for top rank, they at least probably want the optics of controlling his last fight before they let him go because they don't seem to have any intention of re-signing him after this. Yeah. As you said, he's a money loser for them. I mean, great fighter, but when you don't have the fighters uh, either in your stable or makeable outside your stable, what are you going to do? Like there's like after Sean Porter, like, 
what is there for Terrence Crawford on top-ranked side? I mean, Jose Ramirez seems content to stay at 140. Josh Taylor probably not going to go to 147 right now. Uh, it, it's tough. So maybe, you know, you just kind of cut your losses with Terrence Crawford. Last thing for you, I saw some video earlier today of Dimitri Bevel, like, you know, using a hammer on a tire or something like that. What is Dimitri Bevel doing right now? Like, why... Why is Bach, this, I'm going to get angry again at the very end of this podcast. Like, <laughs> why is it not just so easy? Like, Zerto Ramirez, to his credit, I get these emails. I, I, I want to, Bob, Bob Trigger send them around. Somebody sends these emails around with, like, quotes from Zerto Ramirez, like, calling out Dimitri Bevel, saying, like, I want to fight you. Zerto Ramirez, a former champion at 168, a popular guy, a well-known guy, undefeated. That should be a fight Bevel is running towards. Yet, Corey, I hear nothing about that fight. I hear nothing about it being close to being done or even discussed on a serious level. Like, what are we doing? Like, Bevel has been begging for a big fight for years. He thought he was in the running for Canelo. It didn't work out. Now here you have a big-name guy who can draw a crowd in the U.S. ready to fight you. If you beat Zerto, it certainly gives you a mandate or at least puts you in a strong position to fight Canelo in 2022. Why is he not running towards Zerto Ramirez? Zerto's doing everything he can like, publicly, to make this fight, he is sending press release after press release. I'm tired of it at this point. Like, stop <laughs> sending me press releases about your desire to fight Dimitri Bivol. Uh, and yet, crickets from Bivol at this point. I'm going to be a little bit more patient than you, Chris, because before I'm we not. came on, I, I, looked at, I looked this up, and, like, as of August 8th, Bivol had said something about wanting to fight Zerto. And right around that time is when things started to get messy with with Canelo and Plant, and maybe Bevel was just holding out hope that maybe he would be the guy that Canelo would choose. And maybe even now he's holding out hope that, hey, you know, we're still in the pandemic. Maybe this fight falls apart. Caleb Plant can't make it to the fight. I'm going to jump in. That's like the Amir, it's like the Amir Khan. It's like the Amir Khan philosophy of like making fights. Like yeah, let's right, just maybe yeah. this will happen. Like maybe. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep chasing you, Floyd. I'm gonna keep chasing you, Maddie. Like and, and it's a big bag somebody. to chase. I respect it if it, you know. But it's been a couple of weeks. I I mean I, I don't think that Bevel is like afraid of Zerto or anything like no, that. But no. but I think that he does need to come to terms with the fact that right now the Canelo fight is probably not going to happen, and a Zerto fight is a very big fight. And and that I mean he should probably any day now turn his focus to it and start entering some meaningful negotiations. How about, I mean, I, I get it. You want to fight Canelo, but since November of 2019, Dimitri Bivol has fought once, one time since November of 2019. And that was against the immortal Craig Richards. Like well, that's the one time he has fought. Here's the question. Are, are there any, is there any pressure from, from Eddie and Matchroom for him to fight John Ryder instead? Is, is that oh, holding I don't, yeah, I, I've Because that, that was too, discussed like, too. I, but what a disaster that like who I, I like John Ryder and I think John Ryder actually I'd like to see the WBA do right by John Ryder and David Morrell and make that fight uh, between those two order a purse bid I think they did order a purse bid. I don't know what happened with that but I'd like to see that fight happen between those two fighters uh, I don't need to see John Ryder against Demetri Bivol not when Zerto is out there like not when there is a much more marketable fight for Dimitri Bevel, like he, he keeps asking for these big fights. Every time in a fighter meeting with his, uh, with his managers, his co-promoters, uh, they talk about how many guys they'd fight. They'd fight anybody. Well, Zerto's there. Like, you know, do a deal with Golden Boy. Eddie and Golden Boy, they work on the same platform. You could put that on the fall schedule, make it happen. It's October, November, December. And the winner in 2022 will have that springboard 
to whatever big fight is out there. I don't think John Ryder gives Dimitri Bivol that kind of boost. No, and, and in some ways, and this is with all due respect to, to John Ryder, but that's probably not a main event of one of these cards. And every no. time you put Dimitri Bivol in a fight, like that Craig Richards fight, which was like third on the card, sandwiched in between some six-rounders or something like that, you're kind of telling the public that for whatever reason, this guy isn't a marquee attraction. And, and you need... You need to be saying the opposite, particularly if you want that Bivol Zerto fight to be as big as it could be. He's the light heavyweight champion of the world. He's yes. undefeated. And there is the 168 pound champion of the world who moved up, who draws a big crowd in Southern California, who is a well known commodity, ready to fight you. Like, why? What are this? Is, this is, again, we go back to the Jake Paul conversation. This is why Jake Paul has room to grow because boxing <laughs> keeps screwing up. Make <laughs> Bivol Zerto. It's easy. It's very, very easy. All right. Corey, great job. We'll do it again. Follow Corey on Twitter at Corey underscore Erdman, E-R-D-M-A-N. Great to catch up, man. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Chris. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50. And it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. All right, so... Earlier this week, I had no idea who Hunter Warner was. No idea. Uh, casual hockey fan, not deep in the weeds. Certainly don't know anything about the AHL, uh, minor league affiliates in the National Hockey League. But uh, it came to my attention in the middle of the week that uh, there was a new player 
uh, on the boxing scene. That is Hunter Warner, 25-year-old, former, now former uh, AHL defenseman. He is going to try to uh, become a professional boxer or is going to become a professional boxer. He joins me here uh, with his manager, Jacob, on the show. Uh, Hunter, uh, welcome to the uh, boxing space, my man. Thanks so much for having us on today. We're excited to be here and excited to talk with you. Yeah, so, so just walk me through kind of this decision. Um, I know your background includes your father was involved in some wrestling, got some boxing people in your family as well. Walk me through your decision to get into pro boxing. Yeah, absolutely. So boxing's in my bloodline. I boxed my entire life. My father was a WCW wrestler. He trained out the famous crunk gym by Emmanuel Stewart. My brother currently is a professional boxer, heavyweight, 2-0. Just got done with Tyson Fury's camp in Las Vegas before the postponement of the trilogy. So this has been the plan of making the last five years. I've trained my whole life. I've been sparring and training the last five years, preparing for this decision. It's been a plan of the making, and my father said now's the time. So, I mean, why was now the time? I think he was just ready with my ability. He was impressed with my ability, where I was at physically. And obviously, I think the boxing is an exciting scene right now. The heavyweight division's on fire, and we're ready to shake it up. You were playing up until this point uh, in Iowa for the Minnesota Wild affiliate, correct? That is correct. So did you feel like you had plateaued as a hockey player? Or, I mean, what, what, what did your – I mean, you're making a pretty dramatic, you know, sports shift here, one we have probably literally never seen before. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I plateaued because I was just entering my prime as a professional hockey player. My agent, my coaches, they were all pretty, you know, wrestling with me. You know, they thought the future was bright, a big NHL a career ahead. I'm a big, imposing man. I play a gritty style. I have a tremendous athletic ability. But it was just time to shake it up. This is my passion. It's been my passion. I signed professional hockey at 18, and I was making a great living. So it kind of made sense to do that. It was too easy to, turn, to not turn down. And it's been in the process that we will be boxing at the end of my hockey career, whenever that is. And my father said, now's the time. So do you feel like your hockey career is over? I think it is over for sure. He's just bringing his fighting from the ice to the ring. That's right. And that, look, and I, I can certainly respect that. Anybody that gets inside the ropes in boxing deserves people's respect because it is a dangerous sport. All that being said... I've covered the sport for a while now. I've seen something like this song before, and I'll bring up an example. I mean, Seth Mitchell was someone that I, I covered for a number of years. Former Michigan State linebacker, got into boxing, had a little bit of success, was kind of groomed uh, because of his name to be put in position to fight for uh, a major, uh, not, not a title at that point, but I think he plateaued with the loss to Chris Ariola. Uh, he didn't have the chin for it, quite frankly. That was his big issue. What makes you believe that you can have success as a heavyweight boxer? Because I've been fighting my whole life. I've been uh, bare, bare knuckle fighting on little blades on ice. I know it's much different than boxing, and I won't even try to compare the two, but I've been starching guys on the ice since I was 16 years old. And I mean, I'm in front of thousands and thousands of people all over the world. My brothers and I have been boxing our whole life. I've been in the gyms. I've been sparring since I was a kid, and we've been sparring the last five years, getting ready for this day. So... They're aligning people. We're aligning people around, and we're big into quality versus quantity. So, looking at the Warner family, investing in them with, you know, trainers like Sugar Hill, Jeff Warner, his dad, getting opportunities with Tyson Fury. So, we're trying to be more a specific, specified, isolated approach to getting him ramped up to be able to have those big bouts. 
they come from my athletic family, as you can see in probably some of your history. But um, no, it is going to be a test, but I'm pretty uh, proud of these guys. I think they're going to do big things. So, like, first of all, give people, what are your dimensions right now? What is your height and weight at this point? Right now I'm weighing at six, or I'm six five and weighing at 265. All right, so you've got the you've got the size to to be part of the new heavyweight division right now. Yeah, he's got a thirty-eight inch vertical. We just tested him out at our state of our facility. We have a bunch of NFL and different athletes that come in. Um, he's got a thirty-eight inch vertical. He runs a four-eight forty, so he's pretty fast and digitally. Well, we're we're now, we're now well, <laughs> you're throwing out a couple of things. I don't know how applicable those are to to boxing. Are well, they? That's good well-roundedness. Yeah, no, no question. You've got to be in great shape to be to be a boxer. Absolutely. Um, as far as your training goes, Hunter, have you settled on? I mean, I heard you mentioned Sugar Hill, or that name was brought up. Uh, where do you intend to train as a professional? So for the main, we'll be training with my father here in Minnesota, and when we're able to, we're going to travel and train with Sugar Hill. Right now, my dad videos everything and sends it to him, my brother and I. So right now, we're just training with him, and we've got state-of-the-art building being made right now. Yeah, we got a 15,000 square foot state-of-the-art boxing facility that we have up just for the Warner family. So it's private. We don't open it to the public. We also offer it to other boxers if they want to rent it out for a month or two during a camp. But we're doing something different than the boxing community scene. Very high tech. Um, we have a lot of different digital aspects of it that people can lean into. We have a life coach. We have a trainer, nutritionist on full time. So we're trying to take a different approach to boxing for them. You, you had mentioned, Hunter, that your father said, now's the time to kind of make that jump. Um, when he said that, did you immediately agree with him? Did you think to yourself, I still may have more to give hockey? I mean, what was your reaction then? So I was ready to do this for the last couple of years, but uh, he's my trainer ultimately, and I listened to him and I trust him. He said, right now you're able to make some noise in the heavyweight division and cause a ruckus. He sees a lot of open areas where my brother and I are going to step in and tear it up. And he said, now is the time for you two to get going. When you told the Wild organization or the Iowa organization what you were doing, what was their reaction? Obviously, it's hard because I've been a vet for them, and I've been a leader. I've been respected by many. I've put my heart and soul into them. I'm a committed man. They were pretty disappointed, especially because my head coach in Iowa had big, big hopes for me. He was invested in me and definitely thought that I was going to have a long, long career, especially entering my prime. But ultimately, he's a good man. I had his support, and he's also a big boxing fan. I was excited to see what I'll be able to do in the ring. Did they try to talk you out of it? Uh, yeah, the pet, there's many different angles. We got managers, agents, coaches. My main thing was my coach because that's who you have a direct relationship every day of the week. And he had, I had his support, although he wished I'd stay and play. I had his support. You said boxing is your passion. Did, did you, are you more passionate about boxing than you are about hockey? 10 times more passionate about uh, boxing than I am hockey. And I always have been my whole life. I don't even watch hockey on television. The only thing I'll watch is boxing. I eat, sleep, talk, think boxing. Have you, you mentioned you had some sparring history. Did you, have you had any amateur fights at this point? So growing up, we grew up on a farm in a small town. There was no amateur fights really near. So we would just travel to the cities and do all of our sparring there. And that's what we've been doing. And then we moved out to the cities later on. And I've been sparring veterans in the sport like Joey Abel, a heavyweight out of Minnesota, who has been Minnesota Ice. My brother, who is professional 2-0 currently, just got out of Furious Camp. I was at Furious Camp with him. got to do training with those guys. That was an incredible experience. 
Your brother having some uh, more boxing experience up until this point, uh, what was his, what are his, have been his thoughts about you kind of making this shift? Yeah, he's been wanting me to make it official for the last couple of years as well. Him and I were on the same page, but my father just got on board and said, now is the time. He's really excited because we know that the Warner brothers are going to come to fight and we'll be knocking people out left and right. He's really excited. So with literally no tape of you out there, how would you describe your, your boxing style? My boxing style is I'm coming forward with pressure behind a hammer jab. You're going to know where you're going to fight as soon as I'm in there. And I mean, I'm 265, 65, and I can crack. I'm athletic, obviously. I've been performing at a high level since I was 16. So I have an athletic history. I'm obviously a big guy. There's obviously power behind it. And you know you're going to fight with me. Coming forward, you're going to feel a jab. I'm coming calculated, ready to drop a bomb. So as you, you said, you watch a lot of boxing. Um, who would be heavyweights that you maybe pattern yourself after, take something away from, things like that? Well, there's so many good champions right now. Um, well, ex-champions too. With uh, There's Wilder. He's got a bomb. I'm not a big fan of Wilder. I love watching Tyson Fury, especially now they've implemented the Kronk style. I love Anthony Joshua, and I really hope to see them fight in the near future. Um, I think that you can take the awkwardness and the movement from Tyson Fury, but I think that that Kronk style, that's a complete package. When you start doing everything, start slipping, start banging your whole package. Oh, you've got to have a jab if you're going to fight that Kronk style. That's what uh, Manny Stewart began. <laughs> Every heavyweight he's ever had was operated yeah. behind, behind that jab. Um, all right, so you turn pro. W- what's next? What is, when will we have Hunter Warner in the ring for the first time? It's a good question. I think we're thinking later in the year, maybe early next year. My brother's got a fight coming up on October 22nd. So I'm in training camp with him right now. We're on a strict training schedule. And we're just ready for start coming and we'll start making our way have you had conversations with promoters because i mean god knows like every promoter loves a good story so someone will if you start knocking guys out someone's going to be interested in talking to you have you had conversations with any promoters about working with them yeah yeah it's been it's been really interesting chris i mean since this drop we've had a flurry of interviews and things like that and so what we're going to do as a team is sit down we're kind of like a family i've known the warner family forever you got the Klitschko's, you got the Paul's, now the Warners are here. And the dynamic story of how this all came together is really cool. They got a heart for the community, not only the athletic sport, but we're going to put it together and kind of pick the right one for them and then uh, and announce it. But we have a couple opportunities to come out with different stories, different video stories. We've been contacted by a lot of major broadcast companies. So it's kind of like a drinking from a fire hose right now. We're going to settle it down, look at it, and we're going to be getting them into the state of our facility, look at this training camp. I'm really looking at how do we improve his boxing, but he's already up at a level where it's pretty impressive to see. Hunter, how how sure are you of your commitment here? Because it is, again, the most recent example. And I go back to Seth Mitchell. You know, when when the going got tough, Seth kind of got out at one point. Like, he was groomed to a certain level. Uh, he lost a fight to Jonathan Banks, came back and won a rematch, then had the aerial fight, and then I believe was never seen again. I think he's a Secret Service agent now. Um like, you know, this is a rough sport and bad things can happen, you know, and there's like, what, what is your level of commitment when it comes to, you know, dealing with the adversity of boxing? Yeah, I'm dedicating my life to this. Uh, I wouldn't give up a beautiful hockey career, a co- an amazing paying job. I mean, you don't just do something like that at 25 years old, just before you enter your prime. I'm coming here. I'm athletic. I'm ready to fight. I'm coming to fight. 
we can go ahead and get stopped. You're going to see who Hunter Warner is. And the Warner brothers are here to cause havoc in the heavyweight division. So and Chris, yeah. and Chris he's coming from bare knuckles to padded now. So let's remember that, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I, I have seen the – I mean, look, it is – I mean, one of the reasons I think Jake Paul is successful is not because he's fighting nobodies necessarily, even though they're not great fighters, but, like, he's got – he knows how to throw the one-two down the middle like that. He he's got real boxing skills, and like Tyron Woodley, as great an MMA fighter as he was, you can see when he boxes. It's wide. It's like there's like you know, it's it's a very specific sport. I think you'd agree. Yeah, I think we're looking at it from uh, Paul's fake fighters to actually a fighter that's coming into boxing, and when you go from bare knuckle to padded, they've just had it in their bloodline. We've seen it even as a young kid. I've known the family when he was fighting in like college. It was like, you, you know, you just started bringing it into the ice and you started ball. So I don't think this is a flash in the pan thing. And coming from his dad having Kronk background with Manuel Stewart, it's kind of passed down the generations. And they just have this fighting tenacity. I, I mean, Hero Sports would not invest in these guys and build a state-of-the-art facility to not have them quit. We're looking to make boxing great. And so they're going to be a part of that legacy too. So Hunter, last thing for you. Who in your family or your friend circle thought you were fucking crazy. Who, which one of them? <laughs> Who's somebody, Everyone. somebody out there. Including his manager. I just want you to know it. You know what? Everyone that knows me knows that I can fight. And they know that I've done this my whole life. I would think that this would answer the question. The people who don't know me as, as personal, thinking, why would you leave the money? Why would you leave the sport? Why would you leave the security? But the people around me from, from Adam, personal life, professional life, know that my family can fight, know I've done it my whole life, and they know that we're coming. And you got what? the Klitschko's, you got the Paul's, now you got the Warner's, Chris. Let's go. Yeah, you, got, you love that angle, don't you? <laughs> Loving that angle right off the bat. Uh, well, Hunter, Jacob, good to talk to you guys. Uh, Hunter, I'm, I'm quite sure that if you have early success, we'll be seeing you on some undercard sooner rather than later. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what you got out there and uh, following your career as you uh, move into this sport. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us on. Thank you. You're welcome to come to Minnesota anytime to see the train, too. Sometime during the NBA season, I think I will. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Corey Erdman and Hunter Warner for joining the show. Oh, and hey, college football is back. FanDuel Sportsbook is making week one even more exciting. Right now, all customers get a risk-free bet on any week one game. That's right. Place any week one bet and get a refund in site credit if you don't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started and sign up with the promo code BOXING to place your risk-free bet today. That's promo code BOXING. 21 plus and present in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, Virginia, or West Virginia. New users only. Must wager in designated offer market. $10 first deposit required. $150 max bonus. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, New Jersey, or Virginia, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. 
What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know, he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.